Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're going to give you more than 50 reasons why 2000 was the greatest year ever in hip hop. Don't believe us? Count them. I think hip hop will always be a void for the people. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads, and with me I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief, and together this is our What's the Headline podcast. We've got a very exciting week for you lined up. Uh, if you might, if, if those of you who tuned in before, we did a special edition back in, I think, December of 2020, about 1984. It was the first in a series where we look at many years in hip-hop and a quest to determine which year is the best year ever in hip hop. Truth is there's several that can fit the bill. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up and say that it's in the nineties. Jake and I have both been fans and students of hip hop and I've had a philosophy for a long time. I'm not gonna speak about you. You can, you can weigh in on this in a second. Yeah. But I've always said that the golden age of hip hop is from 1978 to the present. I don't believe there's any one year, although there's, there's some strong years. I don't think there's any one year that you can declare the absolute best, but we're going to make an argument for a really, really um, interesting year right now. I'll also share that Jake and I um, have disagreed quite often about a lot of things when it comes to hip-hop, <laughs> which is what makes us great partners because we're yin and yang, you know, very complimentary, often we'll like the same albums, but completely different songs on it. And so this is a year, 1984 was a year that I put forth because of, you know, so many things I saw as being kind of landmark things that, that happened during that year. This year is one that Jake put forth and um, it took some convincing. It took some convincing behind the scenes. I was like, nah, man, that's weak. Like, you know, we need blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And Jake was like, okay, all right, I got something for you. And he went behind, worked his magic as he always did. And behind the scenes, I should say. And <laughs> worked, his ma- worked his magic and um, came up with a really, really, really uh, compelling set of reasons for why this year, is one of the best years ever in hip-hop. And I'll let you do the honors, Jake. What's the year? Y2K, year 2000, man. Y2K, Y2K. All right, so this is your show, man. You kick it off. Uh, Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting, you know, because I know there's, you know, you weren't quite 16 years old in, in 1984. I mean, you were around that age, and I was around that age. You got to stop, like, dating, man. This is like... (laughs) Yeah, second time you try to like you know shape like nah man you know ageless I'm ageless yeah that's that's very true I uh, I wish that I was but no I mean it's it's interesting 2000 was a year that was very important to me um it was probably I'd have to look but right around that time was when I first started writing about hip-hop purposefully um you know like high school newspaper status and 
um, you know, definitely was uh, check the mailbox, the first of the month type of person with the source and double XL and stress and so on and so forth. But when you really step back, um, I think 2000 is one of those years that people don't talk about nearly enough. And when you lay out the facts, it is a contender for one of hip hop's best years, you know, and, and to, to us and to the sake of this conversation, there's technology at play. There's a lot of interesting things, but look no further than the music. And um, just to start us off on, on, a, on a high altitude, why don't, um, why don't we talk about the classic albums that came out in 2000? So classic albums in 2000, um, there were quite a few. And it wasn't until you listed them out on the document that I was like, oh, man, like 2000 was really, really on point in terms of like bodies of work. And as you know, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of albums that like are cohesive and that have several, several tracks. Classics are unskippable. There aren't that many classics, but a great album has to have, I would say, I don't know, call it 70% like great tracks. One of the ones that I can think of was actually the end. Well, I won't say the end, but I think it was toward the tail end of a four album run unlike any artist not named Kendrick Lamar. Mm. Uh, and I mean four straight. I don't mean just four in the catalog. I mean four straight. And that was with Outkast. You know, Outkast stood on that Source Award stage, was it 1995, um, and said, Yeah. And said, you know, the, the South got something to say because they yeah. won a Source Award and they were getting booed. And, and you, know, um, you know, just like Death Row, who's getting like, you know, hammered in New York. They said, look, y'all going to have to respect us. And they went out and proved it. So they kicked things off with Southern Playlist of Cadillac Music. Then came Atlians and ATLians. And then came um, Aquimina, which is my personal favorite. Um, you know, but then right after it was Stankonia. And that was the year 2000. So that was, in my, by my count, they were four for four. And on Stankonia, you got Gasoline Dreams, you know, which is fantastic. Um, that's a, a, that a, that um, introduced um, Killer Mike, right? Um, On that album, but not that problem, song. Right? Snapping yeah. problem, yeah. Um, so Gasoline Dreams, So Fresh and So Clean, Miss Jackson, which, you know, um, aside from that, that, uh, that double album, I think is probably their biggest single. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spaghetti Junction is, an, is a sleeper on there. The first single was uh, B.O.B. Bombs Over Baghdad which had that like planet rock beat to it, you know, yeah. it's real like electro funk kind of tempo. Uh, it had humble mumble featuring Erica Badu, you know, one of my favorite artists, just a really incredible, incredible album. And, you know, that's just one of many, but I know you got a couple favorites too. Yeah. I mean, that so album again is about that album. Yeah. I mean, that album was the first time I had a really interesting advanced copy of something. So that lets me know right there I was writing and I think I had it, you know, two or three weeks before the album dropped and it dropped right around Halloween. And I look at Bombs Over Baghdad. I mean, to me, Stankonia has the perfect singles. Um, and I totally agree with what you said. I, I would never dispute that Outcast doesn't have four straight classic albums. But Bombs Over Baghdad, you know, you look at the way these two guys are rhyming in, in a syncopated style over that drum pattern I mean, to me, you want to you want to be like, you know, B-boy bravado and talk about your cool Keiths and your Lakim Shabazz's and your great MCs of, of the like 88, 90, that run. 
this is just as good. And the fact that that song was all over, you know, radio and video. Yes, this was Outkast, but you were, you know, advanced hip hop on a higher level in everybody's face. And Miss Jackson, I mean, you know, you we we look today at what you know so many artists are doing with the with the melody stuff. I mean, none bigger than Drake. Outcasts like Nate Dogg, like Pharaoh, like Devin is a great example of artists, you know, Heavy D that was doing that at a really high level then. And it's funny, in the year 2000, there were two songs that were big pop hits that I loved the first time I heard them. And by the time a year later, they were played out. One was Maria Maria, you know, on the, uh, you know, Santana album. And the other was Miss Jackson. And there's been just enough time, you know, 21 years later, almost where that song has died down enough where I can enjoy it again. But that, that album is just, is great. And, and, you know, I, for anybody that watched the, um, you know, the, the flavor unit, uh, you know, documentary on organized noise, um, you know, I know those guys were frustrated as outcasts, you know, and Mr. DJ continued to produce more of their own albums, Mr. DJ being their DJ and together they were earth tone three um, but, you know, they still kept organized noise in the mix. Some of those songs you just mentioned were them. And you used the word earlier, cohesive. The fact that you have two different production entities coming together, both happening to be trios and making this end-to-end burner. Um, man, that's just, that album is, in, is insane. And you said Equemini is your favorite. All, all, every one of those four albums, I can go at a different time and say, that's my favorite. But today, you know, of those four, Stankonia is it just because the way that they got that, that kind of, um, you know, that funkadelic, that, that psychedelic sound with the guitars in there. Um, man, that's just a, a special kind of hip hop that was super duper inventive. Yeah. You know, the other thing about that album and actually a lot of outcast music is that it ages really, really well. Yeah. You know, a lot of hip hop sounds dated. Um, it's locked into a specific time period. But that album, um, especially like Bombs Over Baghdad, you put that on now, man, and, and like you could start a riot. It's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, it gave B.O.B., the, the, the rapper, singer, his name, I mean, in part. And, and that album, yeah, just incredible. And even, even a joint like Toilet Tisha, which, you know, could be like the pick and boogers of the 2000s. I played that song today before this conversation. And it, it still goes. And I went from being in my teens, I'll age myself, to now being in my mid uh, to upper 30s. I can still listen to it. You know, it doesn't, it's age with me, you know. So you put another album on here that I don't know has aged as well. And I was surprised that you put it on there. And you, you might even know about, about the setup, but that was Country Grammar by Nelly. You want to you break that down? What, what, what yeah. <laughs> I can, and this is a, you know, I talk on this podcast sometimes about being objective. Um, You know, for me, I was not the biggest fan of Nelly on the scene. Um, You know, like that, and and, and I'll give him his flowers. Like Nelly knew how to make the catchiest, um, most, you know, melodic, but still rap stuff. And I'll step outside myself um, because there's other albums that I would consider classics this year that we're going to talk about that I don't play every year. Country Grammar is one of them, but it, it went diamond, you know, and that's a huge accomplishment in hip hop. I don't think, um, you know, I know Hammer's on there, but I don't think you can say any of the diamond certified albums are whack. And to this day, if I'm listening to Rock the Bells or I'm listening to Mix Show at Lunch and EI comes on, 
I play that. I enjoy that. Country Grammar, the title track, I do. And, you know, these songs are forever embedded in our lexicon, whether we like them or not. And, you know, I, I look at Nelly and I look at Ja Rule and they very much served a purpose. And I feel like if you take them out of the equation, hip hop today doesn't quite sound the same. These guys made catchy songs that kind of towed the line between rap and R&B. Um, and they really found a, an incredible ear for beats. And, and Country Grammar has that. And Nelly came into the game from St. Louis, you know, not a city that had huge recognition in hip hop. He came in the game with, you know, um, a really unknown team around him and he made it work on the highest level. And that was a time that I distinctly remember turning on Rap City and seeing artists that I had never heard of before, had not gotten off, off of features or major cosigns, you know, they weren't signed up under somebody else. And I think Nelly is a shining example of that. And I know 16-year-old Jake right now is throwing, you know, stale produce at me for saying it, but give the man his propers. Yeah, you know, I can't go as far as saying that I, I would consider that album a classic. Uh -huh. What I can say, though, is that, um, like you said, it was Diamond, and it had two of the biggest singles, not only of the year, but, you know, two of the bigger ones in hip-hop. You know, Country Grammar was one. And then E.I. was another one. And Nelly, you know, kind of single-handedly put St. Louis on the map, yeah. you know, uh, and really just like, you know, put on for his city and changed the sound of hip-hop in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, it's, and, you know, um, which leads into another album that we're going to talk about, but we didn't put on the list, but I think does squarely belong in it. You know, there's a guy who said, um, only dudes moving units is M, Pimp, Juice, and Us. Yeah. And that was Jay-Z, you know, and so he released his album, The Dynasty. And, you know, would you call, first of all, um, I've always thought of that as a compilation album, as like, it's um, kind of like a, a Rockefeller compilation album instead of a solo album. You call it a solo album or a compilation? I think it's a solo album. I hated that compilation. It kind of felt like when somebody's playing chess and they keep their hand on the piece just to see how you're going to react. Um, I feel like Dr. Dre did that with the Aftermath album. I feel like there's great artists in hip hop that have put out something and then kind of been able to use it as a get out of jail free card with their discography. And, you know, at the time, I don't got, I didn't get the feeling that that's what Jay did with that album. I think our takeaway as fans was that because 2000 was a year that Bleak got his second album and his first, in my opinion, kind of went unnoticed by his second Bleak was more in your face, but it was also the year of Beans, you know, coming out with his own album. And first time I heard Freeway, 1900 Hustler. So Jay used that strategically to bring people with him, which I think you see a lot of other places in hip hop. Um, I'm not going to call it a compilation. I think it's a Jay Z album and I think it's a damn good one. Well, so I wouldn't put it in his top five. Um, no. I, I, I would say Reasonable Doubt. Blueprint One, um, 444, Black Album, and Volume Two, probably in that order for me. Okay. Uh, but I, I might put this album at number six when I go back and revisit uh, the track list. So, you know, key joints on it for me, Change the Game, mm. uh, I Just Want to Love You, uh, which, you know, we'll get into it, but, you know, introduce, like, really put Pharrell and Neptunes on the map. Uh, Streets is talking. Just Blaze just murdered that with, with Beanie Siegel. 
this can't be life. Uh, stick to the script. Uh, you know, holla. That was a one for me that was like probably a sleeper, but like holla, one nine hundred hustler. That's my joint. Uh, I mean, there's just there are joints on this album, like real, real joints. And so, while I wouldn't call it a classic necessarily, I, I would definitely put it in there with some of the strongest in Jay's catalog, which means oh. it's some of the strongest in hip hop. I like this album more than Volume Three. Um, and 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 on a personal level, I prefer well, it. I said Volume Two though. Volume you did, two. you did, and that's what okay. I was getting to. Okay. On a personal level, I prefer it to Volume Two. I Volume Two. I go. I went back recently and I enjoyed it, but it, it was always the album in Jay's catalog that I always felt was a little bit overrated. And the the album that I feel is underrated is American Gangster. But yeah, I mean, people don't talk about Rock La Familia. And what's so interesting about it is Jay gets all this credit for what he did in 2001 with, you know, the blueprint and showing vulnerability. You mentioned this can't be life. Like that song, I truly believe you could yank off of this album, put on that one. Um, there's a few of those moments and one 900 hustler. Oh man. Like that was a period of time. Um, you know, you just mentioned the Neptunes where just blaze went from being this guy that I had read about in either blaze double XO or the source who was making beats on a two way to the way that he was flipping rock and soul samples and letting the song cry. Oh man, like that, that joint. And, and, and as a hip hop fan, one Nine Hundred Hustler is a remake of a song by the Convicts on Rap a Lot, you know, which is Big Mike before he joined the Ghetto Boys. Like no one talks about that. Like it is, it is an update a decade later of this joint of like, don't play with my phone. Here's a lot of game. I'm gonna give you know. And when it's all said and done, I'm ready for Freeway's album. Like here, boom, take my sixteen dollars. And you know what Bleak do, what Bleak does, and what Beans does on that song is just epic to me. That is one of those those Rockefeller posse cuts that is possibly number one, definitely in my top three. Word. I, I love that joint. It gets me hyped to this day. Uh, so we talked about Pimp Juice, J. Yeah. Uh, that leaves M. M had what I believe was uh, his only classic album. You want to break that one down? Yeah, I mean, the Marshall Mathers LP, just an insane record. And that was, you know, I lived through All Eyes on Me, you know, the out the double album. I lived through certainly Life After Death and, you know, Wu-Tang Forever. But this is an album that I remember that was everybody was skipping school to run out and buy it. You know, people, it was a conversation piece and everybody had it. And you look at the takeaway and I do agree with you. I think it's a classic album. The part about M's only, uh, like, I'm not upset at you with that. And it's funny because in recent years, I think you're a far bigger Eminem fan than I am. Um, but this album is, is damn near close to perfection. And, you know, I know it's, it's the big played out song after I just said that about Miss Jackson. But I think Stan is, 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 is a worthy place to begin and just talking about what makes this record great. Um, you know, taking the Dido song, flipping it, you know, shout out to 45 King and Kid Capri and coming out with something. I hadn't heard Dido when I heard Stan. And then to have those songs living in coexistence together, the video with Devin Sawa, you know, became like a mini movie. And 21 years later, we're still using that word in our lexicon. Stan will live forever. 
um, even as Eminem's favor, you know, fluctuates, you and I will accuse each other of being stands of different artists all the time. I just think that is Eminem at his best. And then what, what I really liked is, you know, you take a joint like Remember Me with RBX, who had made a very, very similar song on Dre's Aftermath compilation. Never thought I'd bring that up twice. And you had Sticky Fingers on there. And like M with the Bass Brothers, with Dre and Melman, just had this vision of an album that feels like a concert. And to me, you know, you talk about Stankonia, you talk about this. I feel like year 2000 album making was just on a really, really high level. And whereas in the 90s, Pac, Big, Bone Thugs, 8-Ball and MJG, they'd throw, you know, they would just, they would just do a double disc and charge fans $25. I feel like there was a little bit more revision processing and a little bit more A&Ring by year 2000. And that shows itself on this album. Yeah, I mean, you talk about Stan. I love, you know, the 45 King story. You know, um, he's an unsung producer. Uh, You know, he's known for, you know, the 45 King, you know, um, song, you know, but um, he's he's truly a, um, you know, he he was a, a producer who just does not get that 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 same kind of credit as others. And then flipping Dido, that Dido sample, which was not a, an old song it was had been released i think within a year or two mm-hmm. of that album and it's very rare for an artist to flip a song uh, that was popular and and make it that much bigger so i really love that um you know i think it was m at his most diverse you know the slim shady character wasn't as prominent on marshall meadows lp it was a much more introspective album darker beats and i think that's what uh, what appealed to me it wasn't as poppy as uh you know some of the other stuff had been and i think that that's what what really drew me to the album they used you know the real slim shady to kind of kick open the door on the album and, and i think i've heard it said but to me it just reads like a jimmy iovine move of like yo let's get middle america in the door let's get the trl crowd let's take a bunch of shots at carson daly and britney spears again you know which m had done on the slim shady lp and to me, that's the weakest song on the album. And it's the one song that you will not catch me in my car listening to. Um, people love the way that I am. I mean, that song was an anthem to so many people. And you, again, you look in M, I mean, long before Instagram and people posting lyrics of tattoos, I feel like this album between that and Criminal, um, you know, it had that. And I, I feel like, you know, to Dre's credit and Aftermath, and, and I'll give Jimmy and Interscope the credit too, they let Eminem go completely off the rails on this one and just be as problematic, as dark, as say what the F he wants. Um, and that that might be why this is his best album, because after this one, there was even much more at stake. You know? I think this is the one all day long. Yeah, yeah, Be Please, you know, was another one. Yeah, so it, great album, you know. So moving on to kind of the opposite end of the spectrum um, is Light Water for Chocolate by Common. That to me is, that's probably my favorite Common album. Mm. Um, you know, it is the Soquarians at their peak. And, you know, Soquarians being the collective of, uh, you know, Questlove, D'Angelo, uh, Erica Badu, um, is it is Bilal, Bilal in there too? Uh, Dilla's in there. 
there's so many people in it, you know, the, the Pino Palladinos and the Bob Powers and the, you know, like when you really look at the Soul Quarians, it's this, it's bigger than even I think we realize, but yeah, I mean, the whole roots, James Poyser, um, you know, Roy Hargrove Jr., RIP, like there was, there was a tribe. Yeah, it's crazy. And so on, on that album, you've got, um, you know, Time Traveling, um, which is just like a fuzzed out, like, uh, you know, psychedelic, you know, almost throwback to the 70s. It's, it's, it's more like a, a soul funk joint than a rap. You've got Doing It, which is, um, you know, one of my favorite Dilla beats ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Sixth Sense. You've got, um, uh, and this is this was rare too, is uh, Thelonious was on both that and Fantastic Volume 2. Like, I don't know which one, like, actually can claim ownership, yeah. But, um, you know, that song was, was phenomenal. Um, uh, you know, um, there's so many great songs in that album. You got, you got The Light. I mean, one of the yeah, great oh, hip-hop love songs. How can I forget The Light? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, so that, to me, is um, it's my favorite common album. I, 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 would, I would call that one a classic. I, I, there are, are, I, don't, I can't think of much that I would skip on that album. No. What was what was your take on that one? No, absolutely. I mean, I love this album. I go back and forth between this and B. And this one, I mean, it's it's over an hour long, whereas B is more like Illmatic length. Um, and Common, you know, his first album, you know, has a host of people, including the Beat Nuts and whatnot. And then he goes into two albums with no ID. And then he came out of that. And this sounds totally different. And whereas The Roots kind of progressed with, you know, Soul Quarians, Erica Badu, we watched that happen really at the onset of her career. Common is the artist that I think completely transforms through what was going on in Electric Ladyland Studios. I mean, this album doesn't sound at all like what came before it. And, you know, Dilla absolutely shined. I mean, one of the things that, that I think is emblematic of year 2000 is Jay Dilla, Pharrell, a few producers impact on hip hop. Um, and yeah, I mean, this one, this one just works and it's, I'm going to say, and I know I might not be able to live in Philly anymore, but this is my favorite, uh, this is my favorite hip hop album from the Soul Quarians movement. And, you know, it just, it, it stands up just like Stanconia. This album hasn't aged a bit, even the, uh, the humor after the sixth sense, which is one of my all time favorite songs where common makes fun of himself. I mean, he has a woman come up to him that's like, you know, oh, brother, calm, you know, you're so good to the women. And meanwhile, he's literally pimping on the corner. And I like that calm, you know, took these steps, but didn't take himself quite so seriously. And um, just a, a phenomenal record. Yeah. And, you know, Pops rap, you know, he had a series of, of Pops of songs where his dad appeared. Uh, rest in peace to him also. Um but I think this one, Pops Raps 3, uh, was, was probably my favorite in the series. So, and just all around strong offering. So, you know, as melodic as that album was, on the opposite end of the spectrum of that was... You ready Ghost for it? Ghost, uh, well, okay, well, no, we can go with this. Even more so <laughs> is, uh, is M.O.P. M.O.P. Warriors. 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 So I'm, I'm on here and, and folks may hear you know, me or us say what is said about Nelly. I contend that the album from 2000, that is a classic with two C's, is M.O.P.'s Warriors. And, 
you know, again, one of the things that we're going to see a lot of in year 2000 are a few labels really doing their best work and loud records um, just killed it. I mean, they had already, you know, made classic albums with Mob Deep and Wu-Tang and Alcoholics, so on and so forth. But here they took, you know, Billy and Fame, who had made good stuff with Relativity, some great singles, but some really good albums. And they made an album that, you know, I think is is incredible. And, you know, they got DJ Premier even more involved, but they kept it, they also kept it in-house. I mean, this is the album that spawned Annie Up. And again, I mean, it was just so refreshing for me coming off of the the late 90s shiny suit era which produced great music but i felt like the underground wasn't getting its recognition to watching annie up on rap city every single day hearing it on radio where i grew up in pittsburgh um and that's a joint that mop produced themselves you know uh well with uh with with um dr period excuse me but somebody that they had been working with and i just i love that I love that factor. That album is everything that those guys had been doing themselves, just a and a little bit better, just turned up in the right way. And there's songs on that album, like, you know, Face Off 2K, which, I mean, I've had conversations over the years with DJ Premier, where he's like, that is one of my favorite joints that I've ever done. Switches the beat halfway through the song, you know, creates a beat just for fame, creates a beat just for dance. Those guys leave nothing unsaid. Um, you know, Roll Call, there's just so many joints on this album and i encourage anyone to listen to it and tell me why i'm wrong because i don't think you can yeah cold as ice was another one uh yeah, you know, huge not that foreigner sample like you know uh, mop and foreigner you know it's crazy but <laughs> yeah. um and you know even the remix you know and a lot of times i, I don't like when artists use the same song twice because I, I feel like it's cheating but you know adding buster to it and you know that just took it up to a whole different level so Early Remy Ma, too. Yeah, know? early Remy. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can say it's a classic, but it's an incredible album and yeah. definitely stands with MLP's best. Um, you know, going back to the Soquarians, I'm, I'm going to tick off two real quick. So this was their year for sure. Common, like you said, kind of embodied their best hip hop. I think their best soul came in the form of both Erica Badu's Mama's Gun and Voodoo, you know, Mama's Gun is probably one of my top three albums of all time, period, any genre, any artist. There's probably not a week that goes by that I don't listen to a song on that album. And that's going on 21 years now. That that album, like, makes me emotional. And I just, I'm, I'm still learning new things. I, I found out, um, I can't remember the song of the day that I sent you a week or two ago, but that... Um, uh, Johnny Hammond. Yeah. It, oh, right, right. Johnny Hammond, Smith. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, you know, um, the, I think it was the uh, Times of Wasting. Um, yeah. uh, you know, that's a sample. No, uh, no, Smile. Yeah, Smile. Yeah, um, is a sample. But, um, you know, that album, it starts off with a, 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 a kind of a filtered track vocal. Uh, penitentiary philosophy just like you know common starts off filtered with um with um time traveling i hadn't made that connection before but real dirty and real like aggressive like soul funk you know dilla has got uh, you know and on you know which is kind of like a, a part two of on and on yeah um toward the end of the album you got songs like um 83 80 uh 
through thousand or um, and um, times of wasting uh, orange moon, and then you've got green eyes, which is you know, if not Erica's best song, one of her best. Um, you've got clever. Uh, I mean, that album is just front to back, does not stop. Um, and so the second one, uh, Voodoo, by D'Angelo. So I had such huge expectations because Brown Sugar was one of my favorite albums. D'Angelo quickly kind of came into that like family of, you know, James Brown to Prince to then D'Angelo for me. And yeah. uh, Pac is in that, that lineage now too uh, for me. But Voodoo was a radical departure from the first album. The first album was smooth and soulful. You had songs like All Right, you had songs like um, Me and Those Dreaming Eyes of Mine, you had Cruising, you had Lady. It was a real soulful, like, groove, you know? Retro. Voodoo, yeah. yeah, Voodoo was very dissonant, you know? Like, uh, it was unlike anything you'd ever heard before. Player, player. Um, he's also got a filtered voice, like, starting off on Player, player, too. That You know, so they, they definitely had that theme going uh, on those first songs and those Soquarian albums back in 2000. And then it gets into Devil's Pie. Uh, so what's interesting about Devil's Pie for me is I actually did the production agreement for DJ Premier uh, wow. producing D'Angelo. And I was so excited when I saw the file. And obviously I saw the file a year and a half before the song was released. Um, and, but then when I heard the song, I was like, uh, not really. It's not really, I don't really check for it. And Primo is one of, is probably top three producers for me. D'Angelo's probably top five artists. So it's still to this day, it doesn't really like grab me, but like um, songs like Left and Right, you know, uh, with, you know, with Red and Meth, you know, who just made that appearance on Versus, um, you know, um, Chicken Grease, Funky, um, you know, um, Feel Like Making Love, Untitled, um, Spanish Joint, Africa. There's just so many songs on this album, just front to back for me. It just is nonstop. They definitely going to hate on you more for for underplaying uh, Devil's Pie than they are for me, you know, shooting <laughs> shoot Nelly some bell. What's so interesting too is, you know, on 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 um, premier joint, Six Sense, incredible one premier joint on on you know D'Angelo, which is wild and and many people know by now. But Cannabis passed on that beat, and Premier was so upset that he was like, I'm going to give it to somebody else like tonight. And, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it, he went over to the studio and, and voila. And what was really cool is I think three years ago, you and I sat front row for a live taping of Questlove Supreme and, and, you know, Amir was interviewing Common and they were talking a lot about, you know, these albums and what was so interesting. And you and I were both bugging out as fans. They talked about, I think it was Spanish joint in trade for, was it doing it? that they yeah, work these yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah because because and, and and quest has affirmed this numerous times on on his pod but like they didn't know where these songs were going to end up so the fact that you have this kind of just you know manufacturing plant and that that takes all the art out of it to the way i'm describing it but they're making incredible things not knowing where they end up and out of it i mean we're only talking about year 2000 forget things fall apart forget you know but there's so many other incredible joints and these albums are so cohesive and these songs ended up like baseball cards, just kind of where they land. It's just incredible to me. Yeah. I mean, another cool experience you and I had was um, interviewing DJ Premier about that picture with him, D'Angelo, Alchemist and 
Who was the fourth? You remember the fourth? Was there a fourth or it was uh, Dilla? And Dilla, right? Yeah. Um, and that was during those sessions. Was it? Was it uh, for Voodoo? I can't. I mean, for um, yeah, for, uh, I feel. I can't remember. I've, I feel like it was that night. It was definitely shot at Electric Ladyland, not D&D. And, uh, and that was another thing, too, is premiere. I mean, Gangstar was like, we don't go to you. You come to us. Like, yeah. you're going to 37th Street. And I think, you know, D'Angelo and the rest of those guys, like, huh, we kind of got our own thing going on down here, um, which is, is just epic, you know, hip-hop folklore. Yeah. So, you know, part of the reason why I think Devil's Pie um, is it's a really you know, um, it's not as melodic, you know, uh, it's a very uh, discordant kind of beat. And um, that's why um, it always takes a while for me to get into RZA beats too, you know, mm-hmm. because uh, it's, it's very amelodic, you know, it kind of goes like, um, you know, against melody to some degree intentionally. And so, but, you know, one of Wu's greatest albums was released that year too. You want to break that one down? Yeah, and, and the cat's out of the bag. Uh, Supreme clientele, you know, and you know, here we are just having talked recently about Raekwon versus Ghostface Killer. Incredible, but you know, Ghost. I, I look at Wu, and you know, I, I definitely, and I say this because you know, nine MCs and shout out to Capadonna for ten. I hold them all in high regard. But I think that many fans would agree with me that there tended to be a sophomore slump of some kind. And a lot of that, I think, was fan-induced. You know, we talk about Raekwon coming off of the purple tape and, you know, going in a little bit of a different direction and fans not necessarily riding with him. And that's happened with Snoop. That's happened with Nas. That's happened throughout hip-hop. Um, you know, Jizza, I don't really count. Words from the Genius was pre-Wu-Tang and Liquid Swords is incredible. But in the post-93 era you know, not everyone was able to deliver, boom, one-two punch of classics. I think the closest up until this point was Method Man. I mean, you know, the uh, 98 to Cal 2000, Judgment Day, topped the pop charts. You know, incredible record for Def Jam. It yielded some hits, but I don't know that it, it quite scratched the itch for the fan base. Then you get to 2000, and Ghost had made Iron Man in 96. And I think this is a case of the sequel being better than the first. There's a lot of people that debate that very subject. To me, this is the best Ghostface album. Um, you know, he definitely, you know, had a, a weapon in his corner with RZA providing production past the first album, which not every, you know, I, I wish Deck and, and Master Killer and You God got that. But what Ghost does with that, I mean, is, is absolutely incredible. You know, you get Nutmeg, you get... Mighty Healthy, which is a mathematics beat. And, you know, I said on this pod, I, I, I think that that's my favorite solo woo song, you know, that's on an artist's album. There is, you know, Incarcerated Scarfaces and Criminology are right there. But Mighty Healthy is absolutely incredible. You've got one produced by the Beat Nuts. Um, so while Ghost was staying close to RZA, he was also evolving in a way that he didn't with that. And, and to me... This album is just sort of like what I said with M. It was like, you know, at the Razor, at the Razor Sharp label, which was Riz's short-lived joint at Epic, they just let Ghost do him. And, and this album is raw, it's lyrical, it's, it's um, what was the word you used? Dis, uh, dissonant. Yeah, dissonant. I'm, yeah, discord, it's, yeah. It's, it's dusty, but then, you know, at the same time, you have a joint like Cherche Le Ghost, which 
you know, Ghost is seeing what Wyclef and, and, and Puff and a lot of the mainstream rappers are doing. Oh, I'll take a disco joint and I'll Ghostface Killer it. And I just love that. I mean, to me, this is an album, again, that I can just put in, lean back. I skip nothing on here. And it's, it's why we're talking about it, you know, 21 years later. Yeah, I would say it's just probably my favorite Ghost album, too. Mm. You know, um, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with you there. You know, so we got one last one that we both would put kind of in that classic category. That's Reflection Eternal, uh, Train of Thought. You know, um, you know Talib Kweli and High Tech. I think what's really interesting about the album is that, you know, a lot of people uh, probably got their first um, taste of Talib Kweli with uh, Mosta and Blackstar and probably yeah. thought, the two of them were a group. And so this was Kwali, I think, showing the world that he stood on his own 10 toes uh, as an MC and could hold down an entire project. No problem, you know. And although it's a collab, it's a collab with the producer, so he's definitely the featured MC. Um, you know, for me, songs on this that I love and still go back to are Move Something, um, you know, memories live. Uh, that sample is just so soulful and like mournful. Um, you know, uh, "Good Morning" is another one that I go to yeah. um, all the time. And then, you know, the, the classic that that you know I think kind of defines him is "The Blast." Yeah. And that one, you know, remixes like it just. But that one is so incredible. But you know, what spoke to you about the album? Love this album. I mean, I often say I, it's a neck and neck battle with me between this and Black on both sides. And not to say that you have to compare the two, but I say that more to sing quality and high tech praises. Um, you know, I love Down for the Count just on some spherical bravado, lyrical shit, you know. Um, and, and this was a breakthrough year for both Rod Digga and Exhibit as well. So to have those three MCs on a song together is very symbolic of the year. I love Soul Rebels, too. I mean, you know, Black Star was right at the cusp of being part of the Native Tongues movement. You know, most was very much, you know, messing around with, you know, De La on Stakes is High and Bush Babies and stuff. But to me, that as somebody who was 16 at the time, let me know that all is not lost. You know, I really, 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 um, you know, appreciate that. You mentioned Memories Lives and then Africa Dream, which is you know, it's featuring Weldon Irvine, um, you know, who had mentored, you know, Q-Tip and a bunch of other people. Madlib dedicated a whole album to him. And it starts as kind of like a, you know, a, a Last Poets, you know, drum pattern record. And Quali drops some of the best bars of his career, um, you know, talking about sl like slaves on a ship, talking about who's got the flyest chain. And that was just such an indictment of the label stuff that was going on. You know, you had the hot boys in the video showing chains and all of that. And it was just very much speaking from that underground place. And, you know, Ruckus, I think year 2000 was really interesting for them. Um, for this album, they put out Lyricist Lounge 2 and kind of upheld that tradition. And then they put out Big L's album. And, you know, Ruckus was changing. Company Flow had left not so uh not so happily and and l had started deaf jokes but you know you look at this album and and people didn't know what to call it you know you look at the artwork and it's talib quality and high tech and in the no fans called a reflection eternal but ruckus had not spent 
you know, much more than a single or two over the years marketing that group. And it just was an exciting time where you could go to the record store, see some familiarity, trust enough to buy it, and then go home with the classic album. And this is one that I play all the time. And I really, really, really think that High Tech is undersung as a producer. Um, within a couple years of this, he would kind of come up under Shamani XL and start getting some bigger placements through representation. But the, the, the high tech that we get on this album that we got on definition with, with Black Star, just truly one of the best producers and came with a sound unlike anybody else. For as much as we can talk about Dilla and Alchemist and, you know, Just Blaze and Kanye starting to emerge in 2000, give, uh, give Tony all of his props, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So there's no doubt that great music came out of 2000. But, you know, one of the things that you and I debated about behind the scenes and coming up with this, this was that I don't think that good music is enough to call a year great or definitive. You know, every year you can pull out probably four or five classic albums, um, you know, many times more. And so for me, there have to be things that happen that kind of change the direction of hip-hop either change the direction or have lasting impact or, or or definitive moments in like a person's career so let's talk about some of those you know we, we talked about eminem's album marshall mathers lp uh for me though this was what solidified the fact that eminem was not just a novelty you know um obviously he had his album uh was it um infinite or yeah 96 uh, yeah before um the sl- before uh some shady lp but some shady lp is when he was on most people's radar and to me the album was very gimmicky you know slim shady was a gimmick um you know he was over the top with his themes he was like a shock rapper um i saw it as something that could be a one and done very easily uh, but this album brought him back and established him as a true artist and positioned him to ultimately become the biggest artist of the decade in any genre. So to me, this was the one that that made Eminem for real and made him Marshall Mathers, not just Slim Shady. But what what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and very quickly, you know, with this album, Eminem had a seat at the table at a very interesting time for Dr. Dre. I mean, we'll we'll eventually talk about the Up and Smoke tour, but, you know, Dre was creating a symbolic reunion with Ice Cube and MC Ren, um, you know, and and Yella, um, you know, producing again with Snoop. Dre kind of had a coming home after two or three really rough years before 1999 and his, you know, 2001 album. Um, And M was part of that, an exhibit later. And, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Eminem took the Easy Pass Express Lane to the top of the class, and he definitely had earned, you know, hardcore hip hop respect on the first album. Some of those moments, stuff that he had done with Ruckus, Scam, you know, the lyrics, um, all of those incredible features that Eminem made in the late '90s. But this album showed that he was here to stay, and that even though when he had all the attention and money on the line, he was still going to do what made sense for M. And I feel that you know, he did that through the years that followed, you know, the next few years, but this was that at the best, because I think so many times we're used to an artist getting that kind of fanfare and then going full out, you know, hammer, vanilla ice, you know, tone low, whatever. 
Okay, so Eminem plants his flag and signals that he's about to become the artist of the decade. At the yes. same time, we talked about these guys. There's another um, artist that, that had a coda that showed that they were arguably the best rap artists of the prior decade. And, and you know, they, they ended that run, I think, in 2000, and that was Outkast. Yeah. Because even though, you know, uh, Speaker Box of Love Below would, would go on and win um, the Grammy for Album of the Year, uh, still to date the only, you know, real hip-hop album that, that, that's done that, I don't think that most Outkast fans would call it their best album or even put it above any of those four albums. So to me, um, Outkast's incredible run uh, was concluded with Stink Pony. Absolutely. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And, you know, to have a four album run, you and I just spoke recently on this show about Benny the Butcher and what he's done in the last two or three years. And Benny's done it. But it, he's not done it on outcast level. And I think even Benny would agree with that. Um, so outcast to do that four albums, make the statement was, was incredible. You know, we've one artist that we haven't talked about that I'd like to throw in the mix is LL Cool J. Um, LL Cool J in year 2000, you know, puts his goat album out and, you know, that term had been used before, but again, it's one of those things that pushes the lexicon like like the word stand um, or so fresh and so clean. And LL, I mean, believe it or not, it was year 2000, I mean, 15 years after radio, that he gets his first number one album. And, you know, say what you will. I don't, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that Goat is LL's best album. But it's dope to see that we were living in a time where a veteran like LL could do that. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I think that Def Jam bought a bunch of units. That was a good album. I mean, Ill Bomb is one of my favorite LL songs of all time, DJ Scratch production. I mean, he came and brought the bars on that. So to see him, you know, benefit from hip hop being in the popular genre like that after 15 years is just one of those love to see it moments. Yeah, it was the penultimate moment for LL Cool J for me. You know, so Goat, uh, yeah, I, I doubt that he coined it, but I can't remember anyone else saying it before that. And he certainly popularized it. And that's yeah. a term that transcends music, you know, people use it in sports uh, terminology all the time. Like he made a, he, it's almost like bling, like, you know, how yeah. pervasive that became. So for him to claim that, and after, like you said, a, I think a uh, 17 year run, you know, yeah. starting from 19, 1984. In fact, he's, he's the guy who ties these two, these two uh, episodes together so far. Because yeah. LL's career, you know, got the jump off in 84 and was winding down in 2000. So, um, you know, I think he earned that that uh, title of GOAT and isn't in the discussion enough. When you think about longevity, you think about consistency, you think about success, you think about impact on the culture. Like, he absolutely, you know, has the right to, to say that. You know, I think that um, his 2002 album, 10, was his last really good album. Yeah. Um, you know, then after that, like, you know, it starts to get um, a little bit more thin, but definitely a great um, year and moment for LL Cool J to kind of like, you know, stake his claim as being hip hop's greatest. Um, another see, person, oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, I, I just riding that veteran theme for a second. You had Nas who, you know, was A-list Nas. I mean, just, just, you know, had put out, I know he had put out Nostradamus in 99 and that album got a lot of pushback, but Nas 
you know, was was definitely, you know, in the uppermost echelon of rap. And for him to do QB's finest, again, that is a compilation album. I'm no disputing it. And maybe that's a reflection of what that album is and how Nas, you know, navigated it. But Nas took his platform and used it to put on, you know, to, to not put on, but shine a light backwards on MC Shan, on Craig G, on Roxanne Shante, on Tragedy Gaddafi. And I thought that that was really cool. And maybe at the time we didn't see it. I know we got a few singles on it. It was a big record for, you know, folks like Big Noid and Cormega. But in retrospect, I think how cool was that? That, you know, with his everything that he had, Ill Will Records and all of that, Nas did something thematic like that. Um, I just love to see that 2000 was this intersection of all of this really interesting talent on the MC side, on the producer side, but our veterans aren't getting boxed out. And you and I talked about that a little bit with 1984 and Curtis Blow, but you see it on a much more widespread level here. Yeah, you know, definitely was not my favorite um, project of Nas's um, at all. But I, I hear you um, in terms of like the statement that he made and the fact that he was putting on his team. And so I'll go back to, you know, to Jay and, with the Dynasty because you know, whether or not we call it a compilation album, he put the rock on his back on that album. Or I won't even say that because those dudes like, you know, took the torch and ran with it. Yeah. But he gave dudes shine. I mean, so Beanie was on, you know, a bunch of tracks. I mean, Bleak, Bleak was on tracks. Um, you know, um, like you said, Just Blaze kind of got his, like, it was, that was his real coming out party. Um, you know, there was a lot of like Rockefeller. Um, it, that was a, a real group effort, even if it wasn't a compilation album on the Dynasty. So, you know, Jay and Nas continue to stay kind of in lockstep with one another and putting on their teams, yeah. uh, you know, that in that year. You know, someone else who had a, uh, a year that I think was a pivot point that would reposition his career tremendously and, you know, for me, I don't know which decade is better for this artist, and that's Snoop Dogg. So Snoop Dogg, you know, obviously defined by death row in the 90s, um, you know, you know, uh, the first artist to uh, debut number one, I think, on, on the Billboard charts, uh, um, first uh, was his debut album, um, Doggy Stuff, 700,000 copies in a week didn't do a million, but it was like, those numbers were unheard of at that time. Um, you know, obviously the soundtracks, um, work with Tupac, like he had a great three to four year run, be the murder case, like the whole nine. And then, you know, um, epic kind of like, um, fall, you know, yeah. um, you know, uh, split up with, with death row, falling out with, with Suge down, uh, on his luck and, you know, teams up with master P who, you know, you know, gets him out of his contract, uh, gives him a very equitable contract, three album deal, uh, owns his own masters, like, uh, you know, really completely changes, you know, Snoop's status as not only an artist, but as a business person. Yeah. And the culmination of that was the third album, The Last Meal. And, you know, that album, you know, uh, he had reunited with Dre on Top Dog on... Um, um just dipping just dipping and be pleased yeah. yeah and be pleased yeah and then um but he had four dre songs on the last meal 
uh, he had production by Battle Cat, so it gone back to, you know, his, his guy, Scott Storch, who was, you know, really starting to come up, you know, uh, after splitting with The Roots, and Timbaland. So that was a statement album that really showed that Snoop was an artist who wasn't dependent on any label, Death Row or, or um, No Limit, wasn't dependent on any single producer. Snoop Dogg was a superstar. And, you know, for me, the albums that will come after that, the Blue Carpet Treatment, Rhythm and Gangster, were just as good as anything he put out in the 90s. And, you know, uh, I think it's what allowed him to become Snoop Dogg, not just a rapper, yeah. a personality with longevity who is still extremely relevant you know, 21 years later from that and like, you know, 31 years later from when he, or, you know, around 31 years later from, or 30 years later when he debuted in in 92. Yeah, I mean, this album was so interesting to me and and it it speaks a lot of what I think artists use their platforms to today. I mean, the title meant this is the last time somebody's going to eat off of me. And, you know, Masterpiece signed off on it. And it, it was the last No Limit record. It comes out. It speaks to, you know, there's songs on here that have that bounce. You know, he's got Back Up Off Me with Magic and Mr. P on here, or Master P. He's definitely gone back with Dre. He's got Lady of Rage on here, MC Ren, who is bubbling, Cube. It appeases all of his different fan bases, and it does. It sets him up. When I think of Snoop Dogg, I think of ownership. I think of somebody who is always authentic to themselves, but where... You can see him in a Pepsi commercial. You can see him, you know, doing whatever. And no one ever calls Snoop a sellout. So this, this, this point of like, hey, you know what? I've got plans. And yes, shout out to No Limit and Master P. And I will always love those guys and speak highly of them. They help get me out of a bad situation. But from here I go. Um, it's really, it really cool. And, and the album itself, I mean, No Limit Top Dog, I think was of the three albums he made at No Limit. That one's the best. This one's number two. And, you know, you got joints like Lalo on there that still continue to play well. And, you know, in his last days at Death Row, Snoop was working with Timberland. People forget, but Timberland came in and did some remixes and stuff. So to see them reunite on properly on here was, was really cool. And again, you know, he was throwing a line to folks that would benefit from his platform, your Cocaine's, your Butch Cassidy's, your Sugar Freeze. And as for me, especially at the time, as a huge fan of, of West Coast rap and reading Murder Dog magazine, I was, you know, kid in a candy store to see the kind of love that Snoop spread around on this, which again is something that we associate with his brand. So Eminem, Jay-Z, and Snoop position themselves for 10, 15, 20-year runs. Yep. All jumping off in 2000. LL and Outkast. It's kind of their farewell parties are close to it. Um, Two other entities that had dominated in the 90s started to have their end in 2000. And that was No Limit and Death Row. Uh, You know, two people who put on Snoop. So you you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, just kind of in short, I mean, Death Row, Suge Knight was still locked up. He He would come out in the next year and change. Um, but the label stars had left them. Um, they were doing things like dissing everyone who had ever worked with them. There's a DVD of them releasing, you know, Dr. Dre and Snoop's address, um, like their home addresses that came out right around this time. And, and Daz was probably, you know, the last, 
um, of the artists that were on the label at the beginning, The Last Hope. And, and right around here, 2099, he finally leaves. And, and in, in Y2K, he put out a joint called Raw, which is really like the second Daz solo album after Revenge, uh, Get Back and Retaliation. I think I screwed up the order. But Raw was a great album. And Daz essentially takes the album that he was going to give Death Row and puts it out, which created a whole lane in the underground. Um, Snoop would later do that too, you know, in, in terms of just making independent stuff. And meanwhile... It, you know, with no limit, it's a little bit different. Master P, you know, is in his 30s at that point, always said he could hoop. That was his personal dream. And he went all in on that. And he went all in on the sports management thing, which, you know, I thought the BET docuseries in 2020 was really good. But as Snoop leaves, Mystical leaves, Mystical finds even more success on his own than in the two or three albums he had done with Master P. The label just kind of lost its luster. It was still P, Silk the Shocker, C, Murder, and Romeo. And I feel like from a, a label that went from having 23 releases in 98, 15 and 99 to a paltry five in 2000, the writing was on the wall. And even though they, you know, helped, uh, you know, introduce currency in the next few years, the label had really just kind of lost its cachet. So with that, you gave an opportunity, you know, certainly Rockefeller was on the rise. But I think you start to see like Rough Riders diversifying. I mean, they put out two great DMX albums in 98, but in 2000 was the year that they got the locks off Bad Boy, put a We Are the Streets out. You know, Cash Money is in full force since 98 with, you know, Juvenile, Big Timers, BG. They're still making moves in year 2000. Ultimately, those two artists even go on tour together, which I think, again, speaks volumes to hip-hop being ready for some new faces, some new labels, some new guard. All right, so 2000 signaled the end of some incredible movements and the beginning of others. All right, so we got, we got some, some, some dominant, long-lasting themes there, too. So great music, dominant themes. Uh, let's talk about, so we talked about albums. Um, let's talk about some songs. There's some songs on here that aren't on some of the albums that we mentioned. I think we covered a lot, uh, but yeah. they're worth kind of going through. Um, you know, so one is Hip Hop, you know, by Dead Press. And that is an anthem that uh, you can still play today. And it's a celebration of, you know, in, in, in theory, it sounds like a celebration, but it's also very questioning yeah. of what's going on in hip hop. It's, it's, con it's, I don't like to use this term, but it's conscious rap um, that has gone, um, you know, mainstream and become like a club anthem, which is rare, you know. Um, and so Dead Prez did something um, out of the ordinary then. Um, you know, we talked about Slum Village a little bit, but, you know, that album, uh, Fantastic, you know, Volume 2, you know, I think it could go in that classic category too, but get this money, play yep. it, climax, raise it up. Um, you know, just a lot of great songs there. One of my favorites is Bumpy Knuckles, Industry Showdown. Um, you Shakedown. Know, Shakedown, Industry Shakedown. That that album was, was dope and had like, you know, Pete and, you know, um, I think Premier and it had a bunch of like- Diamond D, yeah. producers on it. But, you know, Pete Rock with Industry Shakedown just killed that, killed that beat. Uh, and, you know, and Bumpy, who, 
you know, most people uh, or a lot of our our, our, our um, listeners know was uh, Freddie Fox, F-O-X-X. First time I ever heard him was on KRS-One's Rough Rough. Um, funny story, his verse is forever. To, it, it's like 30 plus bar. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's so ill. He tells a story about like, you know, his enemy and like how he uh, he kills his enemy, then he raises his son just so he can kill his son. Like, I mean, it's it's just, it's grimy. And um, the reason why it's so long is because, you know, he's sitting there in the studio with KRS-One writing his verse and, you know, he's writing, he looks over at Chris. Chris is still, you know, writing. He looks over him, you know, hour later, still writing. And he finds like, yo, man, you know, what's going on? And Chris was like, oh, man, I'm just doodling. Like, my, my run's up here. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't realize that Gary else was just going to freestyle his verse. And he he killed it, by the way, too. And so that was my introduction to Freddie Fox. And I always loved that dude because that verse is just so crazy to me. But then after that, he didn't do anything um, that really, really resonated, really popped. And so, and it's, you know, this is, you know, the time, you know, um, before like you know we'll get into like you know digital downloads and all that other stuff and so it was really hard to find anything of his so when i stumbled upon this industry shakedown album and realized oh bumpy knuckles is freddie fox it was like it was just it was fantastic to see a dude who i had so much respect for and love so much reinvent himself and come back so much stronger yeah i mean you love to see that and, and this was like post mf doom where hip hop loved that. And Fox did the same thing. I mean, he used a lot of cartoon imagery when he did that and, and went completely independent. And, um, you know, and that's, that's somebody, I, I, I don't think I've made a lot of friends with artists. That was never my prerogative. Um, but the first artist that I ever considered to be a friend is, is, is Bump. And he had a birthday earlier this week. So I reached out and that, that joint, I mean, changed the trajectory of his career after being the feature guy with, Chris and G rap on money on the bank and OC and Gangstar. Um, you know, it's, it's funny in retrospect, you look at this year and, and some of the singles, again, we didn't talk about prodigy at all, but keep it thorough. I mean, which was an incredible joint. And one of those songs that I just assumed havoc produced, not because it sounded like it, but because the beat was so incredible only to find out, Whoa, whoa, whoa who's this alchemist dude? Um, you know, boom, you know, we're talking about premiere a lot, but, you know, Royce was two years away from his album, but he was in this label system and put out Boom, which to this day is still one of his greatest songs, DJ Premier produced. Um, you know, come on, what's bigger than Whoa by Black, by Black Rob, which is a Buck Wild production, you know, from DITC. And I mean, again, that was another song that was in the lexicon of us all. I remember all around year 2000, everything was like, whoa. And, and Rob, who had been this guy who was deep on the benches of Bad Boy, you know, since the mid nineties and the post Craig Mack era finally got his chance. And to this day, you and I talk about that album life story. I mean, you know, but, but look no further than the single. And since you mentioned hip hop, I mean, that, that, that beat to me and that song is so incredible because here you had guys that I didn't know, you know, previously to that and M1 and Stickman, And they were saying about the killings of Tupac and Biggie, what their own friends weren't of like, yo, we're going to take action on this and we know it. Let's talk about it. And I just thought that that was so crazy. That beat is insane. And then, you know, in the next few years, Chappelle gave it a second life by using it as, you know, the entrance music of his show. 
And to this day, um, you know, people talk about certain records of eras like Ghost Etza at the uh, Latin Quarter and everybody would hit the floor. To me, when I hear the beat to hip hop, like I don't care if, you know, I'm having the best conversation of my life. I'm stopping what I'm doing and, and kind of, you know, getting involved with that song. I just, you know, what's better than that? Word. All right. So we got enduring albums. We got singles that still resonate today and you know people go back to when they when they think about like classic hip-hop um you know one of the things we talked about with 1984 was that it brought the fresh fest you know the first um um hip-hop super tour and fast forward 16 years later to 2000 we got three kind of super tours. Um, so one was Up in Smoke. You know, we talked a lot about like Dre and his impact with Eminem and Snoop. Uh, obviously he worked a lot with Cube. Um, and so the Up in Smoke tour was Dre, Snoop, Cube, Eminem, Westside Connection, D12, um, Nate Dogg, and Dog Pound. And more. I mean, and the more, artist, yeah. like Razcast told me one time, you know, I mean, he was paying out of his own pocket. Like, Artists were just trying to hook because this was the West Renaissance, you know, it was incredible. Yeah. And so I didn't get to see the tour, man, but I bought the um, there was a, a VHS cassette, a VHS tape yeah. of the tour. So I bought that and it had all the behind the scenes stuff and, you know, like pool parties and stuff like that. And it just was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, but, you know, complete opposite of the spectrum for that was spit kicker you want to talk about that one yeah man spit kicker so common de la soul Pharaoh manch bismarcky on the turntables reflection eternal and i think there were some you know other artists but me and my crazy world to quote the lost boys july 31st 19 2000 both are in pittsburgh the same night if i'm not mistaken and i was working at burger king at the time i'm not above sharing that on this platform and a coworker of mine was like yo man you want to go to up and smoke tonight I got an extra ticket, you know, and I had tickets to Spit Kicker. And I stand by that. Like, I, trust me, I didn't make a mistake, but I've still to this day never gotten to see um, Dre perform. I've seen him. I've seen Snoop. I've seen a lot of those guys. And, you know, you mentioned the VHS, the showmanship of lowriders on stage and dancers and all of that. But Spit Kicker was the exact opposite and just as dope. I mean, it was it was hardcore hip hop on the road. And, you know, I don't think any one label was behind it. I think, you know, Tommy boy, had, you know, was promoting some of it and ruckus was promoting some of it. And I remember, you know, Bismarck E um, watching him DJ at that time was so eye opening to me. I had turntables at home and was very infatuated, but to watch biz, you know, he did this thing. You may have seen it where he would cut a record back with his belly and like pull his shirt up and, just the showmanship of it all. And that was the first time I saw De La, which, you know, after Gangstar, De La is my favorite group. So to watch how these guys work the crowd in a really important year for them is, is um, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is, is they put out AOI, you know, the first of two. And that had ooh on it with Redman, which, um, you know, come on, incredible, incredible record. But to see all of these folks together, um, that was still to this day, one of the highest levels of emceeing. And I remember the ruckus team that was there announced to the crowd when I went to that show in Pittsburgh that Big L's big picture had gone gold. And, you know, Big L had passed away at that point, knew who he was, actually had his hip hop quotable 
from the source cut out and taped on my wall from day one with DITC. And just to hear that, I remember just like being, being, being floored. Um, it just definitely felt like the underground was on the highest level at that point. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned those two daylight albums, man, those two stand to me with, you know, any others in their catalog. I, I yeah. thought that was a, a resurgence for them. That was incredible too. Yeah. And so we, we talked about up and smoke and spit kicker. The third really interesting tour um, was between two collectives and two completely opposite sounding collectives. So cash money and rough riders. You want to break that one down? Yeah. I mean, opposite sounding, but two, two movements that weren't, you know, big on samples. You look at Manny Fresh and you look at Swiss Beats and, and, and um, you know, the folks that were also on Rough Riders. I'm not talking about, you know, Dame Grease who, who sampled heavily on DMX's first album, but, you know, Swizz, you know, was one of those guys like Rock Wilder that came with a, or Pharrell, like a sound. He didn't need that. And the way that he was just programming up those beats. So to imagine that is really crazy to me and to have artists from, you know, Yonkers, New York and the Bronx on one hand and have folks from, you know, New Orleans together. It just felt like, um, you know, an incredible idea for artists that were certainly built to last. I didn't go to the tour. I don't even know if they came through Pittsburgh at the time, but I read a lot and there's a lot of journalists that ask folks involved and they say that, that was one of those tours, sort of like, you know, the, uh, the, the hard knock, you know, life tour and different things where just the, the fellowship was amazing. And, and let's not forget, too, I mean, there were remixes. Um, what was it? I think the down bottom remix uh, that Juvenile had, like just those guys were working together and it was a really cool time. All right. So um, another thing is that. Um, you know, we, we've talked about this before. When hip hop first started, there was no underground because hip hop by definition was underground. And at some point there became mainstream hip hop, you know, and, and listen, there were there were outliers even when it was when all hip hop was underground. There was like, you know, Young MC and Tone Loke and Vanilla Ice and MC Hammer. But these were people that, you know, kind of true hip hop scoffed at. And, you know, um, so they weren't really representing the culture. They were kind of like, um, they were selling out. Yeah. And so, but there was a time when there was a split and hip hop became a true business that was supported by a big economic infrastructure and, you know, was meant to be commercially viable on radio and like, you know, uh, and bought in droves. But there was still an independent, you know, more, um, you know, uh, I'd say pure, like not intended for radio vibe too, that was considered underground. Ninth Wonder had an interesting theory that we covered. Uh, he said it was um, the day that Ilmat, that, um, um, Stakes is uh, high. Yeah, uh, it was written and um, Stakes, Stakes is High were, were released uh, same day. And that was a schism between kind of mainstream and what then became underground. Um, and Nas actually jumped from being underground to mainstream with a more polished album meant for more commercial play. I'm not sure if that was it, but I, I love that theory. Um, but in any case, by 2000, the underground is firmly established. You have not only Raucous, which is kind of like the, um, the, the, the pinnacle of underground record labels, 
but you've also got pockets like Fat Beats where the underground lives in a physical space and people can go and buy records and, and meet artists and hear and watch ciphers and like really experience it live and direct. And you say that um, 2000 was a benchmark year in the underground. Why? Yeah, I mean, there's a few reasons. And one is, um, you know, I feel like after Eminem and Most Def, you know, two very successful artists, one platinum and one gold, you know, had come in the late 90s, really the year before with Slim Shady LP and then Black Star and, and Black on both sides. Every label, you know, followed suit and tried to um, upstream artists that they thought were on that level. And while we may have never seen some of the commercial uh, outcomes, I guess when you look at Black Eyed Peas, which were signed a couple years earlier, you, you may have gotten that. But hip hop benefited and, and some of these labels, because at the time, you know, I, I remember being a consumer and thinking, well, where is my money going? You know, does does Def Jam need my money? But, you know, Ruckus or Fat Beats or Stones Throw might. And, you know, I, I look at that and I say, well, Dilated Peoples were signed by Capital, Jurassic Five and later Planet Asia were signed by Interscope, Rod Digga goes to Busta and Elektra. Royce was bouncing around, you know, Tommy Boy and Sony system. Exhibit goes from this artist that was, um, you know, very much, you know, messing around with like King T and the alcoholics to becoming Dr. Dre's next protege. Also, you know, which I thought was really, really interesting and, and no one saw coming. All of these different folks were getting picked up. And then you started to have a, a, a real place to fit in for veterans. You mentioned Freddie Fox, Bumpy Knuckles, you know, who had spent part of the 90s on Flavor Unit, put his first album out on MCA in 89. But he comes into this community and, 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 and makes sense of it all. MOP comes back, Cellar Dwellers, you know, on and on and on. Um, you started to see people just make completely authentic art, not be accountable to what my numbers are going to do and have it work. Um, so I think that's that's certainly an aspect of it. Another one is songs about hip hop itself are winning. I know we make fun of that these days of like everything should be more about than just rapping about rapping. But to turn on the TV and see a video like The Sixth Sense by Common, which is about hip hop, but it's also about other things. That's crazy to me. Um, we mentioned Dead Prez, Jurassic Five with Quality Control, which was a big record. I mean, there's so many cases of this where there was a market and there was an interest. And most importantly, there were artists that didn't have to be deep, but could make a moving song about this thing I love. And people were buying it. They were buying it on album. They were buying it on vinyl. You know, there was, you know, you talked about Fat Beats being a place to buy. I remember growing up in Pittsburgh, being able to go to Sandbox Automatic online or undergroundhiphop.com. And you could buy this stuff and have it shipped through the mail to you. And I just think it was a really, really interesting um, nexus of underground versus mainstream. And when you, again, when you look at what Bad Boy was doing with Shine and Black Rob or, you know, um, just some of the decisions that the labels were making to try to compete, it, 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 it kind of worked. It cut through the entire culture. Everybody wanted beats, rhymes, and, and skills. You know, it's funny because when I think about it, I had stayed on that mainstream wave right around until 2000s, right? End of 99, beginning of 2000, that the underground started to really kind of pop up on my radar. And it was from 
Fat Beats. You know, I lived like literally two blocks down the street from Fat Beats. And, uh, you know, it's when I, you know, started like, you know, going there and checking out vinyl. Um, but the other thing, the thing that really got me into it was Napster. The original Napster was really starting to like take off in, in, in 2000. And it was an absolute game changer because you know, up until then, the way you got your music was you went to the record store and you bought your CDs or, you know, if you live in a big city, you could go to a vinyl store and buy singles and, and get, you know, stuff that was kind of fresh. Or, you know, if you lived in a New York or someplace like that, you could go and get mixtapes on the street from, you know, you know, DJs, you know, um, Ron G and, and like Kid Capri and, you know, doo-wop and people like that. So Napster, though, was the great equalizer in that everyone in the world could have the entire universe of music at their fingertips. And it was not just like songs that were out on albums. It was rare remixes. It was um, you know, blends. It was concerts. It was anything that had ever been recorded. And it was a complete paradigm shift. It would take you like five minutes to download a song. And an album might take you all night because most people didn't even have broadband connections at that point. Right. But, you know, it was worth it because you could have whatever you wanted. And it was a complete paradigm shift. It also made it so that um, people didn't have to buy entire albums because you were locked in at that point. Once, If you liked a song, you had to buy the entire CD. And so, like, it was the beginning of you know, the complete music revolution that is now like, you know, inhabited by Spotify and Apple Music and, you know, all these other, and Tidal and all these other platforms. But, you know, Napster was the thing. And, um, you know, I think it did a lot of things. Not only did it shift how music was consumed in the business of music, it broadened a lot of people's taste because you could experiment. You know, you heard about The Grateful Dead. Okay, cool. I'm going to download this you heard about like um, this, you know, about uh, Fela Kuti. You can download that. Like, I mean, so people could, you know, really experiment with things. I remember hearing um, the Wild and Peaceful re- remix uh, of, of um, uh, by Incognito by Kenny Duke Gonzalez. Oh wow! Uh, that like was to the um, um, that it was to the um, electric relaxation um sample you know oh, shit. Uh, okay it was incredible and that's where i first heard like um uh critical um uh, by um um was it not it's not planet asia um uh man i'm i'm blanking on it but zion i zion i yeah but I, zion I, thank you uh featuring planet asia yeah, um, word um you know, and so that got me into Zion I, you know, and I can't find Zion I at Tower Records. So I, find, I go to Fat Beats and find it, you know, and so much like stuff from the underground started to really pop for me. But it also, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I think it also signaled the end of crate digging. Hmm. Because it, it used to be that I would be out in a club and I'd hear like a song, um, you know, and like scour the earth trying to find it, you know, yeah. and you know, like the source of static, you know, when I first heard that it wasn't available for like four months after the video drops. And you, you no longer had to go searching for things and dig in the crates for music because you could just type it in 
and it would be on your computer within five minutes or you know a couple hours at most and so I think that Napster was the, was like the beginning of a beautiful movement in music where everyone had everything at their fingertips, but also the beginning of the end of like what was ritual and like, you know, real culture and like a, a community, like, you know, so it was a very complex moment. That's a good point. I, I remember when I was in high school, I had a thousand CDs like by artists, you know, and I remember putting them on display and all I wanted to do was just show that to my friends, like they would give a fuck, you know, and it was alphabetized and, and I was just studying everything I had. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I remember people having CD books and right around this time, those CD books started to change to CDRs with handwriting on them, you know, and there were kids in my high school that would just sell compilations that they had downloaded and made of, you know, stuff on there. And, and yeah, the game definitely did change. And for me, on one hand, I was really happy about it because everyone was taking their CD collection and trading them in and then I would go buy it. But it did. It lost a little bit of the luster. And it's, it's uh, as an aside, it's, it's dope that you mentioned Zion I too, because there's a lot of groups and underground artists today that are very much around and successful that emerged out of this year and this time. And I just, you know, I, not to not to go back to the underground, but to mention Cali agents, you just said Planet Asia. Quasimodo, I mean, a huge year for Mad Lib, putting out The Unseen. Aesop Rock is very much around on a second album. You know, Philly, Jedi Mind Tricks, Binary Star, Murs, who is somebody we cover a lot on AFH, Necro. There's so many artists that came out of this era because there was a community. And that community was definitely challenged by Napster. I never had it. I had LimeWire later, but I just remember... And I think Big L was a great example of that. I remember there were kids that I knew that had never read a source, had no clue what DITC was, but we're talking about this guy, Big L, and the Deadly Combination freestyle that, you know, they put on his album that had him, Tupac, and Big, which was just, you know, kind of tethered together freestyles. And I remember being frustrated just because I was like, you know how hard I had to work to find Big L? And literally you got people that are clicking Go eat a sandwich, come back, and they got the song. Um, but AO Technology. Yeah, man. So, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, I mean, one it of the other things. Like uh, 10 years later, that you could replicate what the original Napster had, like with all the remixes and live stuff, and that was YouTube. Right. The only place you can find that repository. That's a really good point. Just um, one of the other points that I wanted to make of, of year 2000, I know we've bounced around a little bit. But I don't know that you're going to find another year in hip hop where all of the great producers are winning at the same time. You know, you and I have spent time on this podcast talking about Dilla, mentioning Alchemist. You know, you introduced the point of the Neptunes. But everybody, I don't care who your goat is. If it's DJ Premier, you know, you've got, you've got Big L, you've got Bump, you've got Common, D'Angelo. If it's Dr. Dre, you've got this iconic Eminem album that we're talking about plus Exhibit, plus Snoop, everybody was working. And I mean, you know, for you, do you think that is especially true of year 2000? Or do you think it's just a damn good year for music? And of course, the people providing it are going to be the goats. No, I think, I think, uh, you know, this is a point that you pointed out. And when I started doing the research, I absolutely agreed. You had Pete Rock, you know, who was, you know, producing for Slum Village and Big L and also on that Raw and Bumpy Knuckles and Fife. You had Timbaland, who had, you know, the Romeo Must Die soundtrack. So he had Aaliyah and Genuine and then 
He worked with Jay and Snoop and the Locks. The Neptunes were really just starting to make their run. Yeah. You know, they had the incredible song with Beanie Man and, and, and Mystical, as you mentioned. Uh, Guru had a lot of superstar producers on his project. And they had yeah. and Jay. You know, um, you know, RZA obviously was doing his thing. Manny Fresh. You know, DJ Quick was still killing it with, you know, balancing options and, and, and Exhibit and AMG. And he had Mossberg. You mentioned Alchemist earlier with, you know, Dilated. He was just starting to get his start with Prodigy and Bumpy Knuckles. Yeah. And Dilla, you know, um, Dilla just was everywhere. I mean, Kanye and Just Blaze, too, were just beginning their epic run. So, man, it was just, it was an insane, insane year for producers. All over. And, yeah, I mean, you had different sounds. Not everyone was sampling. You know, you had you had your, your Mannies and your Timbos and guys that weren't. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, I look at that and, and, you know, even like Large Professor, you know, was, was doing some things and even putting out singles and Prince Paul went and worked with Deltron, you know, like goes out West, Del puts out another, you mentioned the underground dope project. So, I mean, even Marley, you know, we didn't mention Marley Moore was working with Screwball. So I don't know, you know, short of Larry Smith, if who your goat is, they're working with somebody and they're making it great. And I just think that that's super cool. And, you know, with that said, too, you and I often talk about the geography of hip hop, you know, say what you will. But the Midwest is, is stepping up on one hand. You got Nelly right here. You got Jay Dilla and then you've got Kanye making his inroads in the South. I mean, this is a breakthrough year for Ludacris. He had kind of put out a, a project um, independently and then signs by way of Scarface to Def Jam, you know, puts out back for the first time. That's a game changer. Three Six Mafia had gone from you know, kind of putting out these indie projects to, you know, beginning what I think is the, the ushering in towards the Oscar in the middle of the decade. Um, and, you know, they had sipping on some Sizzurp, uh right after Jay-Z had put out Big Pimpin' at the very end of 99. So by virtue of both of those songs, you got UGK, again, doing the same thing as 3-6 and really coming to collect their props. Um, you know, Trina, there's, there's a whole bunch of other artists and, you know, we mentioned it, but it was a breakthrough year for, for Beanie Siegel, Ja Rule on the East coast. And yeah, I mean, on the West, I never know what to say of Alchemist or Exhibit because Alchemist, you know, lived for quite a while around this time in New York, but he's a, you know, he's an LA Beverly Hills guy breakthrough year for him and Exhibit, you know, had bounced all around from Michigan to New Mexico to LA and, you know, even though X to the Z had put out previous albums, 2000 was, you know, the year that ultimately kind of takes him to Pimp My Ride, Training Day, you know, household name exhibit. So it's all relative. Yeah. And so, you know, you talk about the new stars. It was also a great run for, for some familiar faces, you know, that had kind of, um, I won't say fallen off, but had definitely kind of had, a, 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 had descended a bit from their peaks. So you had Everlast from House of Pain, you know, um, completely redefining himself. You know, Whitey Ford sings the blues, you know, and, you know, the amazing songs on, on that album. Plus the Santana uh, look, you know, which was album of the year that year, you know, yeah. or would win it, you know. Absolutely. And we talked about Bumpy Knuckles, you know, a.k.a. Freddie Fox uh, reinventing himself, um, you know, De La Soul. Those two albums, you know, we, we've talked about how rare it is for artists to put out two albums in a year, especially two good albums. It's commonplace now with Griselda and Currency and people like that. But like back then when artists had true 
cycles where you, you didn't put out more than one a year for them yeah. to do that was a, and, and with, at that kind of quality was a, a fantastic thing. Um, I know you, and you mentioned UGK already and, you know, Cypress Hill too. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, so, and, and we talked about Eminem on the Rockstar mix, you know, I, when I think of training day, I think of two songs and that to me is one of, you know, the best movies. I know that came out, I believe in 99, but when, you know, they jump in the car to still Dre, but also, um, you know, when you hear, uh, you know, rock superstar by Cypress Hill. I mean, and that's later in the movie when it's starting to get like, Oh man. And I mean, shout out to Cypress. They, they, they were always active, but came back, you know, a decade just about after their debut and totally different sound, but it was still true to who they were. And that's a great record that, that just shows the talent in that group. And I love seeing that. I just, I just felt like age didn't matter as much at that point. Um, you know, quick with balance and options, which is my favorite quick album. Um, just, just so, so much good. And it was a great time to be watching rap city every day. It was a great time to listen to mix show, um, you know, late at night, just on air, you could catch all coasts, all, you know, artists that might be 19 years old and artists that might be, you know, um, 35 years old and, the folks that really put in the work in the year 2000, the proof's in the pudding because I think they're very much around today. Yeah, man. So you, you sold me. 2000 had it all. It had classic albums, iconic songs that have endured, beginnings of movements and careers for incredible artists and ends for others. Uh, you know, great tours. Uh, the underground like had its, you know, had its kind of like, um, you know, it's it's coming out party. Yeah. Uh, technological shifts with Napster uh, and producers, you know, galore, new stars. Dude, it was an incredible year, an incredible year. And the computers didn't crash. Y2K was all a myth, but all that we had left was uh, some really dope hip hop, in my opinion. So um, uh, why don't we close on what's what's your what's what's your favorite song from year 2000 or, or what's your what's your song of the moment and i'll go first and i'll say i'll go with six cents by common just because um you know we've talked about com's album on here and, and again you know he he went and he did the the 199 you know with sadat and he had started to head in this direction but when he came with that joint um that's still to this day is one of my five favorite uh marriages of a message and a dope beat and man that that song and video was just everything to me but what's yours from from the year 2000 man it's, it's so many uh i'm i'm actually gonna go with two um so i sent you one earlier streets is talking um jay and beanie siegel um yeah. and you know that beat was just incredible um but the other one you reminded me of today is is, is lay low uh, oh that, wow! That joint, I love that joint, uh, the Snoop and, and and Nate Dogg joint. So good, man. So, um, yeah, man, two thousand was a great one. Absolutely. Well, let us know what you think. Let us know what you remember of it. Let us know where you're uh, definitely where, where you definitely disagree with us. And um, this is not the end of the series. So, if you think that we're overlooking a year, just you wait. Absolutely. All right, man. All right, man. Till next time. Peace. Yeah.